This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. What is up, everybody? Man, do we got a good interview today. Matt, I'm so happy you turned me on. What's up? What's Pro- up? Professor Dr. Anna Lemke, because um, we're going to be talking about dopamine and addiction, and I have a lot of questions that I'm going to ask her. I know you do, too, but this is going to be fascinating. How in the world do you and I from Greer, South Carolina, get people from Stanford all the time or Harvard? Or I mean, it's amazing. Like, it, like this podcast is it, like will attract people way smarter than us and i don't know how but it's it's worked for years now and i keep loving that we keep getting amazing guests like i mean it just well, doesn't Toby, you stop. see we're we're what's known as influencers yeah we are aren't it, we <laughs> you know in the landscape and influencers but, yes. hold the keys to a lot so you get a lot of publicists you get a lot of phds people with yep. books people with movies yep. and films and they want what we got you're right influence over yeah. the masses basically yeah so that's yeah, how yeah. the that's how the exchange works well, I just thought they were all Screamo fans. <laughs> <laughs> they just love Screamo music, right? Speaking yes. of Screamo music, a new uh, single came out last week. Uh, Daniel, uh, mm-hmm. there's a long, That's it's a longer title. Name. No, it's not. Daniel, I'm not going to make it. Go ahead without me. Um, it's about the car accident I was in. Uh, it was very uh, bad part of my life. It really was for a long time uh, for me personally, but uh, it's just about the actual incident. And uh, our new record's going to be coming out soon, and you can pre-order and pre-save all of pre-save that Pre-save is the thing they like to do. Yep. Um, yeah, on Spotify. You know, there's a lot of other platforms, but we and most artists are Spotify-centric because it's yeah. just easy to see. We use it. It shows numbers. They've got a lot of artist tools right. and stuff like that. I was looking in the analytics of Spotify. Their analytics are just awesome. I mean, you can compare numbers. You can overlay this this band and the band you're trying to compete with and see how yep. much more streams the Red Hot Chili Peppers have than you that make you want to quit or whatever it would mm-hmm. be. But um, but we had our biggest uh, day on Spotify ever when the song came out. That's crazy. It's out not mean that the they t- got the most streams of all, but that in addition to our streams being up and having yeah. a lot of buzz, that, that Daniel song put it over the top. Man, we're becoming one of the biggest bands in the world. I, I heard people throw us around like uh, My Chem Romance. They're like, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, like My Chem Romance, Emery, you know, like Metallica, that. Metallica Beatles. Yeah. We're getting thrown around with the big boys now, finally. Finally well, in my 40s, I'm respected. I think of it as a little bit scarier than that, but it's just that you hear a lot less about other bands. Yeah. So if if we're still in a conversation, that's good, but there's an actual <laughs> cutoff. There's just a cutoff, yeah. And, it, and I think it's my goal and a very high likelihood that we become the smallest band to ever make it. 
Just like yeah. the smallest podcast to actually continue and make it. We're the the cutoff is us. If your podcast yeah. is smaller than ours, trash. Yeah. If your band never got bigger than Emory, <laughs> got nothing. That's exactly true. That's exactly if right. If you're lower, you have nothing. You definitely don't have a career. You definitely don't, you know, whatever. You did something cool yeah. for a time, but to, yep. to you know, we're shooting for the bottom of the barrel to be included, you know, yes. uh, in what I consider to be, you know, music history. Because yep. <laughs> music history is big and long. And are we not part of it? No. Like, if your yes. name, like, if you, some bands didn't make it to Spotify and they just kind of went away or whatever. And I don't know. I don't know what's going on. But, like, is it, like, what's the farthest time from now? This sounds like, this sounds like stuff Joey would say about church or whatever. But right. what is the farthest time from now someone might listen to or reference or remember or have a feeling about the band Emory? How many years from now? Because you might would have thought not even to, in 2002, you would be hard-pressed to bet that anybody would be Emory fan in 2022. Right. Yeah, you're right. But now, 2042 seems more likely than you would have thought 2022 was. So what does yeah. that mean? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think there will be someone that listens to our music 100 years from now. Yeah. If the world still exists. There's not a direct descendant of yours. Like yeah. an actual friend. Right. And that person would say I, they're a fan? Well, yeah, I think somebody's going to stumble upon it and go, oh, that's kind of cool. Because, you know, I move, music moves in cycles. I'm finding, I all the time find bands from definitely. 100 years ago? No, 50, <laughs> 50 years. Well, no, yeah, yeah. 75. Well, they probably. didn't have, you know, there wasn't a yeah. plethora of recorded music. There's a lot of 50s music I listened to, for sure. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? That's 72 years ago. So if, if in, something was made in 1950. And, you know, so, I, I mean, that will be interesting Though, like, think back to, like, music in the 30s or 40s, how that even sounds and the style of it. Like, yeah. compared to now, will our music sound like that? You know, will it be like, you know, hello, yeah, darling, period. I want to yeah. talk to you tonight. You know, that, that's yep. what people will think our music sounds like. But I think there will be somebody, it won't be a lot of people, but, I mean, I think all this stuff is recorded, and it's very weird how the legacy of r things that are recorded live now like uh, like it is a form of eternal life in a way um however this I, I don't know how it's saved or stored you know i guess if the planet blew up maybe it would all be gone but i'm sure that, there's some radio waves even out if there the somewhere. planet blows up you know blockchain or something will get blockchain it. baby <laughs> don't get me on blockchain yeah all that shit's gone <laughs> all that shit is gone i don't I, I look at my coinbase account and it is it i could i it takes my breath away. It is horribly sad. I don't even want to talk about it. Let's forget about that. Anyway, we are our new uh, album. Is it coming out? It says here. June 24th, I think. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's next Friday, right? I don't think it's this Friday. I think it's next Friday, if I'm not mistaken, because this Friday is, yeah, yeah. So it'll be next Friday. Our new album, uh, Rub Some Dirt On It, comes out. Critics are proclaiming it the greatest record ever uh, on Tooth and Nail. <laughs> 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 no, it's not, man. Oh, yeah. you ever hear? Yeah. Anyway. Uh, so, yeah, please, the link's in the description. Please pre-save that link uh, uh, or pre-save it with the link in the description. Um, and we're going on tour in three weeks, and we're going to be touring with Aaron Gillespie and Idle Threat. Aaron Gillespie's playing all of Southern Weather uh, on his acoustic guitar. You're not going to hear this anywhere else. You might as well uh, check it out live because uh, that's going to be pretty cool. Uh, we'll be in Atlanta, uh, Columbia, Tampa, mm -hmm. Orlando, and Jacksonville, and West Palm Beach. That's going to be a lot of fun. 
Um, also, if you haven't joined the BC Club, uh, you get two bonus episodes. Matt and I just recorded one. Um, we'll do one on Monday and Friday. Uh, you get my weekly newsletter, The Goods is what that's called, and you get your name. There's a few other perks, too, including all this Emory stuff that you get. It's kind of crazy how much Emory you get with it. Um, so you can join at thebcclub.com. That's thebcclub.com. One of the other per- perks is you get your name read on this podcast. And this week I thought it was interesting. You said you have a non COVID illness, right? Yep. Is that a virus you have? You think a little virus? I, I mean, probably, probably something. Yeah. 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 Well, the clubbers, they always send in fun stuff like their favorite Bible verse, whatever this week they sent in their favorite virus. Oh, nice. Which is kind of crazy. So, uh, Jonathan Swanson, he sent in, uh, hepatitis just happened Love to it. be, his, it happened to be a, B or C. That's what I, he didn't clarify, but I think he likes all of them. Maybe. Yeah, but okay. if what's your favorite? You got a favorite well, one? Well, what's I like the worst the one, one? That's the STD itself. Yeah. Not oh like, hell like, yeah! I mean, some people like this the cold sore on the lip or whatever. That's not, right. I'm not a fan. I like the uh, cool. Yeah, I like it all. Uh, Jason Cooley likes polio. You know that one fucked everybody up for a long yeah. time. Then they, then they had a vaccine and it stopped fucking people up. Isn't that crazy? Those vaccines mm-hmm. sometimes. Mm-hmm could be good evan warden you know which one he likes rabies that one's scary rabies is badass i mean that's one one of the coolest tear you up it is crazy what it'll do to you that it exists and it didn't get less or is that was rabies worse than that and it got down like how covid was bad you know really bad and it's kind of lessened the symptoms a little bit as it's going along was there like a really bad rabies when it started is that how that worked like it was really scary and then it got to where now it just maybe horribly kills you now it only horribly kills you yeah, rabies is but one um, where you can, if you get attacked by a rabid raccoon or whatever, and you yeah. get treatment right away, I think you can survive. But the treatment is like a bunch of shots in the stomach. Yeah. <laughs> God, dog. Um, Otherwise, Jake, you just go. Did I, did I read Evan Warden? Wasn't that who yeah, I just read? Yeah, that's okay, rabies. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he was oh, rabies. Oh, right. rabies. <laughs> Evan Rabies Warden. Uh, Jacob Troy, uh, he loves SARS. Which is severe SARS. acute respiratory oh, yeah. syndrome. He thinks that SARS yeah. is pretty powerful. Yeah. Pretty crazy right there. And then, uh, of course, Jared Willis loves Zika. The Zika virus. Zika. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I don't think it's that crazy to admire viruses. I mean, I'm joking what they about can do, it or whatever. Right. People like to do morbid about it. But it's like, yeah. I mean, first of all, and I guess this is morbid, but you know people like serial killers, right? Yeah. Like, you know people are right. interested in you know, this or that serial killer, obviously. Mm-hmm. And viruses are just, you know, king daddies of that, of course. Right. And they have mechanisms that they use and seemingly something that seems like creativity mm-hmm. or it, it express, like the virus does its own thing and they're all very unique and they do their, you know. My personal favorite, for sure, of all time, mm. is Omicron, though. Oh, it's the, Omicron. It's, it, the Omicron variant is the coolest yeah. virus of all time because it literally especially when it first broke and exploded and it was everywhere those few weeks yeah first of all it saved a lot of lives i guess by being less bad right so that was like actually a good thing it did um but if you it was at some point it was a single particle the first omicron mutant good that God. was i'm omicron there was one molecule at, right at some point there was one molecule of omicron and mm. then a few weeks later it was every single place on the globe. Yeah, that's wild. And it got there. 
And that's yeah. just nothing. I've just never heard anything cooler than that. Like it, yeah, that's you, pretty like wild. Deers have it. Dogs have it. Yeah, it's everywhere where there is life. There is Omicron now, yep. maybe and forever. But at least, it, and that happened in weeks. It covered the yeah. whole globe. One molecule. Right. That's unbelievable. That's insane that it actually did that, and it was scary yeah. to the whole world and everything. I mean, that's like, I mean, we were talking on the. Uh, on the bonus episode, if you join thebcclub.com, we're talking about aliens and that that idea that uh, something could just come and, and uh, take you and hit you. It was all over the globe and all of that stuff. Like, I wonder if other alien civilizations might have just had something similar and it, it ended them. Like, we might not. There's probably alien civilizations that have come and gone because a virus wasn't as uh, livable as... Yeah, yeah as yeah, what maybe. we've lived through and and ours are horrible like you know if you look at all the viruses i mean it's it's killed unfathomable oh, amounts yeah. of people and stuff like that but i mean it's just crazy that it like there's there were probably viruses must be a constant throughout the universe like well, it would, i mean I right mean, or is, it's hard is that to say what in the universe but yeah, yeah. they're simple they're simple they're maybe the for carbon-based thing, life forms you know. maybe it affects carbon-based or something well, they're easy saying? to replicate. They're the leanest little nothing that can replicate. That's right. barely, not quite even alive kind yeah. of thing. So, but the whole history of the Earth, at least for billions of years, has been a war between virus and bacteria. Right. That's the landscape that all other species kind of have grown out of and, and managed. But it's like the ocean is just full of viruses and bacteria just killing each other all day, right. every day. But um, we'll do bacteria for people, their favorite bacteria next week. Ooh, bacteria. Mm-hmm. But there's good mm-hmm. bacteria too, though, right? Oh, you yeah. need bacteria. Like, bacteria gets a the, a bad name. Oh yeah. I mean, it totally gets. I mean, I think it's because of the antibacterial soap. Yeah. And now they say that's dangerous and bad. That's for a, you. So, I've never. Touched say, that. It, I, don't, I hardly ever. Terrible try to for wash you. My hands, personally. Yeah, I don't care what I'm doing. I, you know, I mean, you don't you don't wash your hands is what I say. I don't for no reason. Don't brush your teeth. I think all that's. I, I think that's conspiracy theory stuff. <laughs> Well, it's a lot of money behind Procter and Gamble in them. They want to sell you things to anyway. It's a good to wash your hands when you think there's pathogens. Yeah. You have the likelihood you've been exposed to a pathogen that's bad, right. but for no reason you don't want to put that crap, especially antibacterial yeah. stuff, because you got to have that good bacteria. Yeah. Like you got to, you, you don't really want to run that off all of your immunities and good bacteria. Come on. It's funny. I was watching an old Norm McDonald uh, video. That it was kind of like a little, little bit into. The, I guess he had. I don't know if he died of cancer or what he actually died of his sickness. But he had to be very careful. But he was doing stand up, and it was just so funny because he was just talking about how everybody's died. And he goes, "Isn't it? Isn't it funny how uh, big pharma has been evil until now? <laughs> like yeah. you know, everybody hates big pharma." And I was thinking about that too. That part of like uh, big pharma, awful. You know, it's terrible, evil co then for about a year and a half I was like, Yeah, man, they're gonna do it. They're gonna save us, they're gonna save us, and now we're probably back to yeah, evil. I mean they they got like about a year and a half of being good and now everybody's like, I don't know about these vaccines and I don't know, you know, they or uh what is they trying to do and now you need four or five shots and you know, is it does it work really well? Or you know, every, there's just more and more questions and everybody's thinking, Are they just trying to get money and how does that work? And I mean, I still don't understand the financial scope of the vaccines and how that's paid for and what those cover I, I just don't grasp it. I'm not smart enough to get it how the whole world said, Yeah, just do it no matter what and what what 
what that turned into. I just, I just don't know. But anyway, one last thing too, make sure you go to marriage supply because you get 10% off with code BCPOD marriage supply. It's the, uh, adult sex toy, uh, boutique shop that Matt and I Emporium. run. Emporium. Emporium. All, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like the eBay of sex toys, right? Uh, no, we have great quality products and, uh, we think sex toys are just a great way to open the conversation up about sex. I know in marriage, sometimes sex is hard to talk about. You got responsibilities, you got kids, you got all this stuff going on, uh, and it's hard to make time for each other. And if you just, you know, show a little cock ring or a little vibrator or, uh, a little, uh, oil or, you know, lube or whatever, it just helps you go, oh, I'm in the mood and maybe we can have a little fun here when, uh, even when life's a little busy and tough and crazy. So go to the, uh, marriagesupply.com, use code BCPOD for, uh, 10% off. Nice. Hi, Anna. Can you hear us? Yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me? We sure can. Yes, uh, we can. Yeah. We want to just thank you so much for being here. Um, we really appreciate your time. I, we both are fascinated, not only, you know, by dopamine and your, and your new book, but, uh, also just how much you talk about addiction and, and all the ideas behind it and the thoughts behind it and how, how we're made and, and how, what we understand and what we don't. So we really appreciate your time for sure. We grew up in Greer, South Carolina. So to get to talk to somebody from Stanford, that's like, we never thought we would be able to like, even <laughs> I never thought I'd be able to just even walk by Stanford and, and wave at somebody. So for you to be here means a lot to us. So we sure do appreciate it. Uh, well, thank you for those kind words and you're very welcome. I never thought I'd be, get to talk to somebody in Greer, South Carolina. So. <laughs> Exciting for me too. <laughs> Neither of us live there anymore, but that's where we're from. And if anybody ever asks where I'm from, I know they mean, why do I talk funny like uh-huh. this? But I, I live in Seattle and have been here for 20 okay. years. And Toby lives in Illinois. Um, and we've just had a we've had a long journey to get here. We play in a, a rock band, so uh-huh. we we've, we've been we've been professional rock band for 20 years, um, oh, okay. basically. And so. Okay. We just have a ton of experience that are uh, dopamine related, you could say. Yeah. Um, that really put put a you know we've just we've seen a lot and done a lot that gives a background that makes me really curious about you know a lot of the stuff that you talk about and write about, um, and stuff like that. But one thing I think is fascinating is that you're not on social media, mm-hmm. um, and you do all this stuff and study all these things, and now with the book and everything else, you do a lot of public appearances mm-hmm. like this and everything. And I'm curious, how do you find that? The whole that whole thing. I don't know if that's kind of you know new for you, um, but how do you think of uh, how how do you enjoy being a public figure? Um, I guess it's very mixed for me, um, is what I would say. On on the one hand, it's very gratifying that that the ideas are resonating, and I get lots of correspondence from people saying how much you know the book has helped them. And that's, that's wonderful. And so if I can help people, I'm happy. Um, you know, getting caught up in like the little glimmer of fame that I, you know, might have for, for 15 seconds. I don't really like that part of it. I think mm-hmm. it's really um, just unhappy making is, is sort of the maybe an awkward way I could put it. Um, and I have lots of ideas about why that is the case, which I sort of suggests at the end of Dopamine Nation, but I'm not sure I really fully like elucidate or clarify. So I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, you, you didn't really understand what I was trying to say if you didn't. Um, and yeah, as far as not being on social media, you know, I have a lot of, of 
of let's say empathy for why people are on social media. Like I totally get it. But at the same time, I feel really grateful that I basically am not on my phone and don't, I mean, I own a phone, but it's mostly off. Um, and I've only had it for about two years. The downside is I don't really know how to use it. The upside mm-hmm. is that it's it's not occupying a great deal of mental real estate for me, if any. And I'm not on social media, because probably because I just instinctively knew that I wouldn't be able to handle it. And I would get caught up in it. And I just don't want to live in that world. I want to be present in the real world. I hope I'm not the last one here. Um, you know, I, <laughs> there is a little bit that danger, right? That it's it's not an individual problem; it's a collective problem. You know, so many parents will tell me, "Well, you know, I, even if I send my kid out to the back alley to play kick the can, there's nobody else there," which is really true. But right. I, I guess I'm what I'm trying to encourage is that more of us show up out in the back alley. You know. It's, it's funny you mentioned that I we just so I just got back from vacation and while we we're at vacation uh, we went down to Hilton Head and because we're from South Carolina and um uh while we were there my wife and I started talking we we're like you know what let's do a two week detox of computers because my kids always you know I, I was like maybe that's about all we'll be able to handle but even for her and I like trying to put our phones in because I do a lot of work and emailing and texting. Yeah from my phone, but my kids just see that as me on my phone. And mm-hmm, and I'm right. no, and my kids will say that to me. They're like, well, you're on your phone. And I'm like, and I want to go, you, John, yeah, I'll get me, <laughs> but, but they're right. They're yeah. saying the truth and I'm just mad that they're right in a way, yeah. but we're, tr- we're trying to do that. But it is, it's crazy. Cause today we went, you know, uh, I, I had to work, I have to work today, but I took them to the library and then I made them like, uh, I had them do an assignment, like write about what they thought about our vacation. And then they're working on some puzzles and they do some, but, and, they are happy with what they're doing, but that there's something about, and I, I mean, and this is going into your, your book and books that those phones and the computers are just, they are, they really better. Like, like they, <laughs> they attract me so much more than a good book, right? like my, like that Facebook or, or mm-hmm. TikTok or something that it just stimulates mm-hmm. so much in me. Like it, it feels like a drug. Yeah. I mean, so let me start, you know, back at the beginning, what you were saying, where your, your kids are noticing that you're on your phone and they're even commenting, well, you know, you're on your phone. I mean, we have to really accept and admit that when we're on our devices, we disappear. We disappear yes. it, yeah. to the people who are in front of us in real life. And I, and I think it's possible that it's not that different when a child says to a parent, hey, you know, you're on your phone. Look at me. Look at me. Pay attention to me. To a child who says to their, to their parent, hey, you know, what, you're, why are you drinking another beer? Why are you having another one? It makes mommy unhappy or, you know, you're not, you're not really paying attention to us. Um, I mean, I think we have to, like, have a healthy respect for the ways in which these digital devices and the digital content really are drugs. And yeah. they are engineered to be appealing. They hijack our pleasure and motivational systems. It is different from reading a good book, even for someone like me, who is a reader, like, so we all are wired differently. Some of us, you know, it's laborious to read. And so reading a book was never Mm -hmm. an escape. For me, reading has always been a great escape. And yet, can I get lost, you know, three hours on TikTok, you know, till two in the morning? I have done it, right? I have done it. So um, these really are drugs. And we have to, you know, the genie's out of the bottle, as everybody always says, it's not going back in you know, we're not going to get rid of this technology, nor should we. There are many wonderful things about it, but we have to figure out how to live in harmony and balance with it. I have a lot of questions because your work really leaves me in this um, 
paranoid state of, of like this combination of curiosity and paranoia, which I, I find to be a pleasant state. Um, oh, good. Uh, there's lots to explore there because there's like uh, yeah. it's danger and I'm learning. Um, I'm thinking, must have I first of all have I already screwed my life up? Is there hope for <laughs> right. me? What am I doing to my kids? And I mean, I really so the motivational system to me. Um, I never have. I've never thought I had a normal one. I probably have one of those ones where the homeostatic balance is very uh, positive. Um, mm-hmm. I've never felt bad, really. I've always felt good. Well, <laughs> and you're, I've, I've l- always you're lucky. Done, you're lucky. I, I think I am. I think I am. But I've always felt really good. I've always been intense. Um, mm-hmm. I've always tra- had a lot of motivation toward just random things, mm-hmm. you know, that, mm-hmm. that kind of person. And I think a lot of people in music and a lot of, um, you know, a lot of people that listen to this podcast and a lot of people that have been in, in where we come from is a lot of ADHD people, a lot mm-hmm. of neurodiverse people, a lot of people that didn't fit in and mm-hmm. pursued their own thing are super independent. We come from the independent DIY scene where you just go, mm-hmm. you make your own stuff happen, and you just do it. Mm-hmm. And it's been really positive. Um, but if you know, if you talk about being overstimulated, I'm just always looking for stimulation and I mm-hmm. almost always find it. Mm-hmm. Um, but but on the other hand, um, especially as I get older, I, I that starts to I start to get more confused about well what really is good or or isn't good in that um and and can it be reset and how much I mean I don't, anyway that's the that's the pretext for my curiosity for all this stuff so um I got a bunch of different questions but it um could you give us just a basic background and see if we Toby and I understand first that what dopamine is and how our motivational systems are are wired I don't want to skip the stuff that I've learned from you and not let the audience uh, catch up but um it's like i understand it to be dopamine be the uh neurotransmitter associated with motivation and then a lot of under a lot of things that we call addictions and tendencies and stuff like that um are really based in the dopamine that we're able to get our own minds to release by engaging in certain behaviors Mm -hmm. yeah so dopamine is a chemical that we make in the brain It's essential for the experience of pleasure, reward, and motivation. It may be even more important for motivation than actual pleasure. What happens when we do anything that's reinforcing uh, is that we release dopamine above tonic baseline levels in a special circuit in the brain called the reward pathway. Um, So that is to say that we're always releasing baseline uh, dopamine at a tonic baseline in pulses. Uh, When we do a behavior or ingest substance, that makes us feel good. Uh, the reason that our brain knows that it feels good is because temporarily we get an increase in dopamine firing. Um, and that, that's, mm-hmm. that's the feel-good thing. We have evolved over millions of years of evolution to approach things that make us feel good and avoid things that are painful. And dopamine is the uh, chemical signal that allows us to do that. It's not the only brain chemical involved in that process but it is the final common pathway for all reinforcing drugs and behaviors. So you talk about yourself as somebody who's kind of happy-go-lucky, you know, what we mm-hmm. call a baseline, a euthymic temperament. Euthymic is sort of like an even temperament or maybe even a, a little bit of a hyperthymic temperament. Hyper, yeah. Yeah, like you're a little bit sort of even a little maybe slightly hypomanic at baseline. People um, have called me manic, and I always thought they th- they must think I'm also depressive when I'm not around, or I go through cycles. But it's not that. Yeah, it's but not. But when just, they yeah. describe me as manic, I go, well, I guess, I guess, yeah, maybe. Right. So you're one of those rare, lucky few who gets to run their 
I, for example, have more of a dysthymic temperament. So at baseline, I think I'm a little bit unhappy, um, but then I do have some periods of euthymia or even hyperthymia or hypomania. But like you, I never go to the extremes of mania or severe depression. And I'm really lucky that way, right? That I'm naturally mm-hmm. bounded. Um, not everybody is. And that's, you know, that's when we talk about sort of mental illness. But the bottom line is that no matter where you are on that temperamental spectrum, um, you are going to be sensitive to the release of dopamine in your brain, which is to say when you do something that's reinforcing for you, uh, mm-hmm. you will get more dopamine. And uh, when I say for you, that brings into this important concept of drug of choice. So it's reinforcing for you. Matt and Toby may not be reinforcing for me and vice versa, or we may have some overlap. Typically, addictive substances are reinforcing for most people, but not everybody, right? Uh, some people don't get much of a bounce from them at all. For others, it's kind of, you know, even negative. Um, But the point is, whatever's reinforcing for you, when you do it, you temporarily get an increase in dopamine firing. But the key thing to understand is that the brain does not, cannot maintain that higher level of dopamine firing. It needs to bring uh, the brain back down to those tonic baseline levels, or what we call homeostasis, which is basically physiologic systems in balance. And the way that the brain does that is actually by decreasing dopamine firing and release below baseline, so an equal and opposite amount from the initial stimulus. That's the come down. But that's hard to understand because it sounds like you're saying, and a lot of the theme in your work is, yeah, it feels good, but you shouldn't want to feel good because it's going to make you feel just equally bad right around the corner. That's, well, it, that's a hard message. Yeah. Just, well, I don't understand hard, that. Yeah, it's a hard message. It's, it, it's not, it's, there's no shoulds about it. This is about how we're wired. And mm. the, the bottom line is that for every pleasure, we pay a price. And that price is pain. And it can be experienced, you know, with the universal symptoms of withdrawal, anxiety, irritability, insomnia, dysphoria, craving, or even just a subtle urge to want to do it again. The bottom line being that we're not satisfied just uh-huh. doing it once. We did it once, yeah, yeah. it felt good. We want to do it again. And the, the way to understand that is not that that's good or bad or that we're good or bad. The way to understand that is to appreciate that that system evolved over millions of years of evolution in a world of scarcity in which in order to survive, we couldn't just rest on our laurels. We couldn't like find that oasis, drink some water, get high from water because we'd been so incredibly thirsty and then just be like, I'm good now. No, instead our brain said, you're good for you know a little while and then you're bad again. And then you got to keep looking. Down bad is the phrase that, that people, right. it's like with gambling or if you, you know, we, we use that phrase in the, I know a lot of people, musicians, I were, I'm down bad. I got a hangover, but I'm going to okay, feel better later. Interesting. I've not you know, heard that it's a term. Down, it's, um, yeah, it's like being down. Yeah, in, down bad. Right. That, like you people do the crypto or whatever. Right, you know? right. It's so, like it's, right, good. Out. So if you're down bad and you don't have access to more of your drug, then it, eventually you will restore baseline tonic firing. You'll go back up to baseline. You'll be back in homeostasis. You'll be balanced. But if you live in a world where, oh, gosh, you know, lost a bunch of money on crypto, let me go back on that site and try to get it back. Then what happens is over time, that initial bump or elevation in dopamine gets weaker and shorter. That's called tolerance. And that after effect or the down bad period gets 
stronger and longer. And eventually we can get into a chronic dopamine deficit state. And that's essentially the addicted brain, right? So that's Mm. chronic. And then we need to use not to get high, but just to feel normal. And when we're not using, we're in a protracted state of withdrawal that might even be outside conscious awareness, but it leads to this kind of chronic unhappiness, which I contend is a state that many of us face today, even if we don't recognize it, because we're constantly bombarding our reward pathway with these highly reinforcing drugs and behaviors. And then we need to, and then you're saying that we just, so it's either continue to give yourself dopamine hits or else what's the opposite side of that though too, right? Like, cause the opposite side is the pain then. So the dopamine hits is the pleasure. And then, so, (laughs) yeah. So you're getting to the central, you know, the central question, which is, Oh my goodness, how, what do we do about it? How do we live in this world? And the, you know, what we're, most of us are doing because we're not fully conscious of what's happening to us as it's happening uh, is that we just keep looking for bigger and bigger hits, you know, more potent forms. We just keep going for the next best thing. We change it up. We get a new, new spouse. We get a new job. We get a new uh, geographic location. We do a more potent form of our drug. We spend more time on our drug, but eventually we can't, we can't outrun it. We can't outrun our own physiology. And we're going to end up in that dopamine deficit state. Well, that that's the basis of my fear is that I've been, had forty two years of success at that. But right. but can it run out? Can, is it possible that I've done so? Like I've had really great pleasures and achieved things that feel that are way beyond. I think. I mean, I'm not trying to brag. I'm just saying I've had experiences I never dreamed I could have, and most people w- wouldn't have. You know, and in a ways that I feel like, oh, so it has to be all downhill from now. Or like, <laughs> you know, they say like an athlete or boxers that yeah, have go- gone down. and done a lot. Is it, can you, per- like, if you just have a really great first half of your life, does that mean it'll last the, the whole second half of your life has to be bad? No, no. I mean, this is not, <laughs> this is not like, it's not that all good experiences in life are bad. It depends how you got those pleasures. If you relied on, on immediate intoxicants to get your pleasure, then you are likely in for a big come down. But if you paid for your dopamine up front, essentially by doing the hard work to get the delayed reward, that's a very good way to get dopamine, which is much more resistant to this problem. But it's okay to admit that I want to continue to reach new heights and get more hard-earned dopamine? Is that a bad goal? Listen, we, we all... We all want pleasure. We are, we are absolutely instinctively wired to try to optimize our happiness. And we want to avoid pain. And there's nothing wrong with that. What, what we need to be thoughtful about is how we go about doing that. And that we live in a world which is constantly tempting us with short-term, immediate, addictive pleasures. And it essentially has adulterated the healthier sources of dopamine, like human connection, uh, like you know, eating food, um, you know, sports have become drugified. All work has become drugified. So it's just sort of a warning. Like the whole world has become drugified. So we now need to think, be much more thoughtful of what we consume, how often, how how much. And just getting back to Toby's question, and we need to intentionally invite pain and hard things into our lives because we're insulated from pain. So we really need to seek out a kind of a new and modern form of asceticism, which is a word that means, you know, pain. 
Um, so this doesn't mean wearing a hair shirt and, and lashing ourselves on our backs or cutting ourselves, but it means intentionally not just taking the easy way, right? Or, or not just doing the thing that's most convenient, but intentionally making our lives a little bit harder so that we slow down, we appreciate what we have, we appreciate the planet, we try to live in harmony with our physiology, recognizing that we live in an ecosystem that is really not fostering our health. Is, but is that where the stuff comes from, where people do, like, you know, get the sadomasochism or stuff, though? Like, you can cheat it on the other side? Like, oh, make yeah. yourself feel pain? That way, everything's great? Like, you get somebody with high heels to step on your genitals, <laughs> you know? And then, like, is that where that comes from? Well, sh- sure. I mean, it, you know, pain... So the way that pain is reinforcing is that it triggers the body to sense that there's an injury. And then what the body does is it starts to upregulate its own feel-good hormones, including and neurotransmitters, including dopamine. So what I'm suggesting is that we need to do that in mild to moderate doses through our own actions um, and wait and wait for the rewards. This is so, so things like exercise, ice cold water bath, martial arts, yoga, other mind-body practices. Create, you know, creative endeavors, effortful, sustained engagement. This is not, but it, it is true that if you take a painful stimulus and, and you make it really painful, you essentially turn it into an intoxicant or a drug and that you want to avoid. So it is true you can get addicted to pain. You know, I'm not going to comment on like people's particular sexual practices, but, you know, in general, you know, sort of mixing pain and pleasure in that context, not anything necessarily wrong with it. Um, unless again, you're going to the extremes, right? And of course, uh-huh. the psychological dynamic. I mean, that, that's a whole, that wades into a whole other area, but. But I, that area is really fascinating because I, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll move on from it from here, but it's also like, there is the cutting. There also is the lash in yourself, like in the scarlet letter. Um, there is billionaires who we figure, like for some reason we believe they, these people, these most powerful people in the world, they seem like they must have blown out their dopamine and now they have to do bad stuff in private to balance it. Like, is that, that's all, sounds like it all makes sense in that Right, scheme. I mean, so absolutely you can get addicted to pain just like you can get addicted to pleasure and it's a matter of, of taking it to an extreme and that's no better, you know, that, that's not good either. Yeah, and at some point people just are so overstimulated that they, they just have to look for something new, right, or something more potent give them, you know, any, any sense of being alive. What I'm suggesting is that we actually unplug and, and minimize our stimulation for periods of time and sit in the quiet and maybe don't even seek out rewards, right. But just Mm -hmm. patiently wait for certain types of rewards to come our way. I wanted to, I wanted to ask real quick too, on that idea, because we have it so good is our pain, even though it's, less it seems like these days does it hurt more like i like my kids like i grew up like in south carolina and you know i was born in 1976 for first 10 years of my life we didn't have air conditioning i had a box fan in the middle of july you know it's hot and my kids if they walk outside now because we've always had air like it's almost like they're like oh my god like today's a hot day i live in illinois now it's a hot day and they're like oh Oh, and I just want, and I'm like, y'all don't know, you know, I feel like the old man now you, I had to walk uphill both ways to school, you know, but is it, is there some truth to that? That like, because we have it 
because we have avoided, we are able to avoid pain more often now, whether that be through drug use, uh, technology, medication, whatever it might be. Does pain actually hurt more now? Like a, what used to be not as painful, maybe even actually hurts more now? Is that is that possible at all? Yes. And that's one of the major hypotheses of dopamination, that it, in essence, both as individuals and societies, because we have so much access to pleasure and we're so insulated from pain, we have physiologically reset our pain-pleasure balance. Mm. And I use this metaphor of pain-pleasure balance in the book. So that it's not that kids today or are wimps, it's that they're actually physiologically differently attuned to pain and pleasure because of the fact that they've had to experience so little pain. Uh, and I'm talking physical pain and on some level, certain types of psychological pain, and because they're constantly able to uh, pleasure themselves in so many different ways. You know, in my now going on 30 year career as a psychiatrist, one of the most fascinating interludes has been the opioid epidemic. And, you know, as a sort of footnote to all of that, what has been especially revelatory for me has been to see people with very severe chronic pain conditions who have been on opioids daily for, in many cases, years to decades, and who over time not only stop getting pain relief from the opioids, but actually start having pain in new parts of their body where they never had pain before. And this has been described as opioid-induced hyperalgesia. Hyper means more. Algesia uh, means sensitivity you know, to pain or pain relief. But, but basically, opioid-induced hyperalgesia means that being exposed to opioids has reset their pain threshold such that now they are more sensitive to pain. So the slightest wind coming through the window touching their skin can often be painful uh, when people have been on opioids for a long term. And I think analogizing that to the rest of us is really accurate and apt that, like you say, you know, we're so temperature control is a, is a perfect one. Like we can constantly, wherever we are, modulate our temperature to make ourselves comfortable. And the result is that we're very, very unable to tolerate any kind of, you know, extremes of temperature. We, we've, we've literally physiologically lost that ability. I believe we can get it back by, for example, minimizing our use of these temperature modulators um, and doing things that are intentionally hard. And, and you know, the kind of what we, we joke in our family and we to our kids, it's, it's time for a forced march. And literally when our kids were growing up, they had to do a lot of forced marches you know, like, no, we have to walk here. And now you got, why are we doing that? Because it's good for you, because it's just good for you. Mm-hmm. You know, so trying to kind of inculcate that a little bit more in parenting today, because unfortunately, our culture has taught so many of us as parents, myself included, you know, in other ways, um, that like, if we're not, if our kids aren't 100% of the time happy and comfortable, we are failing them as parents. And in fact, the truth is, if our kids are 100% of the time happy and comfortable, or we're trying to make them so, we are actually failing them as parents, Mm -hmm. because we're not preparing them to live in the world. It's so hard not to jump in and rescue these kids, but it's really, really good to let them struggle and fail and have consequences. Even with stuff like temperature, like it's worth it to try to to do, like, so that, if that's true about temperature, it must be true about everything. Like you should be, I mean, that's just hard. That's just hard. But it's like with everything, we should be making sure 
that we're not denying the pain side of whatever the thing is that we're involved in and at every yeah i would go i would go even further i mean i think it's a neuroscience informed philosophical orientation which is that pain is good for us and that it makes us and and this Uh is the sign also the science of hormesis hormesis is greek for to set in motion and it's it's lots of animal and some human uh, science showing that when we expose ourselves to mild to moderate toxic stimuli we actually become healthier and this is true whether it's uh, you know very mild forms of radiation um, you know, ice cold temperatures um, a spinning wheel so again the idea is that regular pulses of what we would normally consider to be things that are bad for us are actually good for us because they promote our own our own body's uh, homeostatic healing mechanism well, I had I, love- I had a one follow up on my that last question too. Yeah. The other thing I'm wondering is, and this seems to me to happen, uh, or it's exacerbated maybe with social media, is because we have it so good and so safe, and we don't have to take many risks. Are because like what you're saying here, Anne, is that pain is important, even though we want to avoid it, we don't like it when we're going through it and all stuff. It is actually important for us. Are we able to avoid so much pain that we manifest it? through social media like are we creating enemies like we need we need pain so we we're avoiding the physical pain you know the air, the air is temperature controlled or these things like do we is social media a way for us to manifest or create enemies and pain and that's why we're like so disassociated now with each other don't trust each other because we we live in we're living in a less pain-free world but it seems like if you, if you look at social media we live in the most pain world you know what right. I mean? Like it, mm-hmm. does, that, does that make sense? What I'm saying? Well, I mean, I think what what you're I think what you're getting at, which I, I do agree with, is, um, you know, how big our small problems have become, um, and you know that that because we're not really dealing with, um, you know, life threatening problems, we can take something very very small, like what word this person used in a sentence, and it just gets totally blown out of proportion. Yeah. And you add to that. So, but I don't think people are intentionally seeking out that. That's not the type of pain that's healthy that people are seeking out. I think that's an inadvertent uh, negative outcome of social media and also chasing dopamine. Because what, what happens on social media is, you know, we're wired to connect. We release dopamine when we make human connections. And we're wired to do that one person at a time in a slow, measured fashion, requiring a huge investment of work, mutual work. What you have on social media is infinite access to millions of people, um, making a connection, um, you know, online instantaneously. And if you get frustrated or don't like what they say or they don't like it, you can just go find another person. They're, you know, immediately available. And then, of course, you add to that the herd mentality where, um, you know, when you have an emotion, let's say outrage, at the same time that a lot of other people are having that emotion, that's also a huge releaser of dopamine. So, you know, you get sort of the, because, of course, you know, when we're experiencing the same emotion as somebody else at the same time, you know, that, that simulates connection. It's not real connection online, but it feels like it because it releases dopamine. Um, but again, this is all happening at a speed and a scale and with a drugified platform that has really adulterated that experience. Mm. So how could that then, if you apply that to playing on stage in front of 800 people who are screaming your song or whatever. That seems like it's a bad idea. Well, I, I don't want to go so far to say is it's a bad idea. Is it a drug? 
Absolutely. <laughs> it's a drug for the performers. It's a drug for the audience members who are collectively yeah. having an experience. But I mean, at least people are together, you know, in real life. Uh, they're sharing, you know, music. There's a there was a lead up to it for the band to make the music a creative endeavor that was hard work. And now this is the culmination of that hard work. For the people in the audience, there was an amount of hard work too. They had to earn the money to buy the ticket. They had to physically get themselves there. They had to deal with the discomfort. So it's happening in real life. Is it a drug? For sure. Will there be a come down? I mean, you tell me. My guess is yes. My guess is yeah. that, you know, in various forms um, after a performance. Uh, there is a huge come down and it's probably pretty hard, hard to manage. Uh, maybe for some people, you know, depending on how they're wired, you know, in fact, the, the performance itself is not the pleasurable part for them. And actually they hate that part and they're glad when it's over and they feel better when it's over. I would be in that category, but for other people for whom that being on stage is pleasurable, uh, I'm sure they have a come down. Interesting. Yeah, there's a spectrum of, and then people deal with it different. And there's lots. I mean, there's lots of crazy ways that people <laughs> deal with it. You know, before and after right. performance, or or the right. weeks before and after. Right. Um, but yeah, you can see that. Um, you know, I, I mean, you. I mean, you could just tell with rock stars or whatever that they get so lost sometimes and they have to craft their whole world to be able to manage that. That's, oh, I'm you know, sure. At the higher levels, I, I of course. I think it's very, very hard. And. Probably what happens is, you know, what happens to everybody with addiction is as we're coming down, we don't like that feeling. So we try to sustain it with more of that right. drug or reaching for another drug. Right. So you get, you know, multiple addictions happening at once. So then it's like as you're coming down from performance, then it's like, well, get me some drugs, get me some sex. You know, let me I want to stretch out this feeling. I don't want it to end. Yes. Yeah, that's it. It's yeah, so interesting. We're talking about this because I grew up, Matt grew up in like the Presbyterian church, but I grew up in a very small backwoods, charismaniac, you know, speaking in tongues, like very emotional, mm. uh, scary God. It was an emotional, scary God. And mm. that, I think that did, now that we're talking about dopamine, I think I even got that's wild stuff. I got as a kid, some dopamine hits spiritually, sure. like, you know, cause, cause, cause it was, you know, in times and scary God, angry God, the bad guys and all of that stuff. It's interesting that we're talking about this because like in your book, you, you talk about abstinence, <laughs> but abstinence for, uh, for me was pretty oppressive. Like, you know, you do not have sex before marriage. Like the church I grew up in, women were not supposed to like even cut their hair, wear, wear jewelry, wear makeup, no, no pants. Uh, you know, we, we weren't allowed to see movies. I mean, there was all these things like, and it was abstained from that and you will find the glory of God in a way, mm -hmm. but you're, you're, you talk about abstinence and it's, it's healthy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, it's mm -hmm. right. Yes. Yeah, so I would imagine with your background, it must be really hard to reconcile all those different forces. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, I would say that your church was in essence, responding to a world of overabundance and temptation and trying to find a collective solution to that by saying, instead of indulging in those worldly pleasures, what we're going to do is build community and, and replace those worldly pleasures with the, the pleasure of um, our community and the glory of God, either in this life or the life to come. And that actually can really work. I mean, another great example of that is the Amish community. Which the is, Amish, yeah. Yeah, but a thriving, mostly thriving and mostly self-sustaining and growing community, which is essentially eschewed modernity and technology and real world for pleasures. And they clearly, in my reading, uh, I, I don't know firsthand, but in my reading, 
of Amish communities in their prayer and worship style. They're all closely huddled together. They're chanting the same thing at the same time. I mean, it's a lot like a rock concert minus the music. And, and, but, but clearly, you know, it can also go wrong. And it sounds like just reading between the lines the way you're talking about your experience, it ultimately was a scary God and it was punitive and harsh and, yeah. and not, you know, you didn't create the kind of flourishing human attachments, which, which I think probably was the original intention. So that's not good. And that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about kind of, um, you know, harsh, like self-flagellating, cruel. That's not what it's about. What it's about, what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that let's recognize we live in a world of overabundance. These drugs chase us down. Everything is drugified. We need to be thoughtful about our consumption so that we don't get caught in that vortex of compulsive overconsumption leading to addiction, which really does uh, breed a kind of abject misery that none of us would want for ourselves or our loved ones or really anybody on the planet. How do we do that? We need to build a world within a world in which we do have these barriers between ourselves and these drugs, and we need to intentionally invite hard things into our lives and force ourselves to be in our bodies and do things that are physically hard, get up off the couch, unplug, uh, you know, wait for things, be patient, tolerate the stress. So it's the, the, the middle ground, Toby, uh, that I'm kind of asking for, which is actually really hard. Yeah, I th- I, well, I think with your your book, one Boring. of the things, yeah, well, your abstinence, it's, yours is like abstinence with a purpose, and mine was abstinence just to, to avoid because it, it was just we were told these things are bad, and then and so and that's why it didn't work because like movies, I love movies. They just said movies are bad because they thought Hollywood was bad or the messages were bad, and I can like you said, I can understand the point of it, but deep down inside it left no autonomy for me to go okay this is okay for me or I, or even choose a, a level that works for me you know and, and and so it ended up just kind of keeping me away but with abstinence you're saying it it does work like if you abstain from from whatever it might be or does abstinence work cuz it seems like people abstain for something and then go back to their drug of choice whatever that might be right so what i'm suggesting is that this is a physiologic problem that our primitive wiring is mismatched for the modern world that we are most of us uh, probably in some kind of dopamine overloaded or you know chronic now chronic dopamine deficit state as a way to compensate for the dopamine overload and what we can do is choose whatever our drug of choice is that thing that once we start we have difficulty stopping that thing that's interfering with our goals values uh, the thing that other people say to us hey you know mom dad or husband wife or friend like i think you're doing that a little too much take that thing Stop it for 30 days. Why 30 days? 30 days is about the average amount of time it takes to reset dopamine reward pathways. The first two weeks are hell because we're in withdrawal. And I'm not talking necessarily about like body shaking, seizure withdrawal, though people can have that and that's dangerous. That's not what I'm advocating. I'm talking about this sort of subtle emotional and physiologic withdrawal, like anxiety, restlessness, insomnia, FOMO, you know, uh, uh, intrusive thoughts of wanting to use. But if we can just wait it out, by the time we get to weeks three or four, it's amazing. Our mind stops being preoccupied. Craving gets better. We're able to uh, enjoy more modest rewards, things that we used to like to do that we seem to have lost pleasure in. So it's recapturing homeostasis or a level balance. And then once we get there, saying, okay, do I want to reintegrate this, this drug into my life or do I want to continue to abstain? Um, the, you know, the abstinence violation syndrome is real. I talk about it in a book, how I got addicted to romance novels. 
how I thought after a month that when I felt much better that I could go back to using, I binged all weekend long and I was like, Oh, <laughs> that's not going to work for me. So I gave it up, you know, for the next year. And that worked much better. And by the time I got to a year, I really felt like I had reset wiring. And, and in fact, I had, then when I went back to reading it, I got no pleasure from it at all, which was a kind of a grief reaction. Yeah. Um, because it's like, oh, this thing that I used to enjoy, I don't really like anymore. But that's what happens because the brain adapts. And it's absolutely true that some people, you know, will, will, will never be able to use their drug. They'll always immediately go back to using it in an addictive way. But moderation is still a really important discussion because if you're addicted to your device or if you're addicted to food, like you can't just eliminate those from your life, right? Right. Because those are part of life and part of, I mean, food is obvious, but even the devices, we can't, we can't really do our jobs and eliminate. So we have to talk right. about moderation. So that is, yeah, I've noticed that same thing. Like if I quit drinking, then I'm sad that I don't like drinking anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's grief. Like, well, there's grief. Yeah, there's a grief there. Yeah, but that's the, sure. really the grief of aging. I mean, the aging process is a process of slowly saying goodbye to, <laughs> oh, to things yeah, that it's, it's I like it. Yeah, it's very hard. Yeah. You know, nobody wants to let go of things that gave pleasure and reward and those people. But but that's just the way that's it is. And, and what we have to be thankful for is well, number one, we're still alive. I think we can be thankful for that. And number two, that there are good things that come with aging that you can't get except through aging. Um, I mean, I hope you all feel that way. I you know I, I do, although trust me, I, I certainly wish that I had bodily functions that I had in my youth that I don't have anymore, <laughs> things that I used to be able to do that I can't do or that don't don't work for me anymore. Like what so was that okay, so say like alcohol or uh were they ever was it ever good for you like like even then during the time was it something like you know you're reading a romance novel when you were you know reading it all the time or whatever was it bad for you even like was it ever good for you like once you stopped did is that the only time you can realize it's not for me like you said you don't enjoy it anymore was it at a time good and now it's not or was it never good does that make i'm trying well, to understand I mean, like right i mean I, I think you know what you're asking is when does sort of innocent recreational use cross the line into dangerous yeah. use and you know physiologically what i try to describe with the pleasure pain balance is that once you've used so much that now you've changed your hedonic or joy set point such that you need more to get the same effect. And when you're not using, you're in a dopamine deficit state, you know, is that a dynamic system or do we cross some line and there's a permanent lifetime change in the brain? Frankly, you know, the animal studies and our clinical experience would suggest that, that there actually is like a permanent change once people have become addicted. So it, it would be good to avoid that um, by using in moderate amounts, leaving enough time in between use to reset uh, you know, the balance so that you're not getting into this vortex of compulsive overuse, try to avoid binge use. So it's not to say all use is bad um, and that, you know, your fun or your pleasure is, you can't have any fun or pleasure. But, you know, at the end of the day, the pursuit of that in a cumulative way does lead to end organ damage um, that will probably be with, with us the rest of our lives. Um, so, you know, we have to be careful. Um, I don't know if that quite answered your question. No, it, it does. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It does. Thank you. 
So let's talk a little bit about the wiring part itself because it's like so individualized. It's like, well, if you're wired this way, romance novels, if you get a pleasure from decoding text, which I understand some people do. I do not. Like, <laughs> I don't have that problem. You you get a pleasure out of that. So, it, you know, it's totally it, – it's different for everybody in their wiring and where they're set. But does that come – can you help me understand, does that come how much from genetics, how much from early childhood, and what things ca- – ca- like – are we setting that for ourselves, or is it inborn? What are the variables that we that are at play, like you know, raising kids, for instance? Right. So it's both nature and nurture. We, we definitely uh, come into this world with different preferences, and that's hardwired and in our DNA, and probably from an evolutionary perspective, a smart thing because if you're dealing with, you know, a world of scarcity and you've got a tribe, you don't want everybody going for the same reward, right? You want one person really interested in buffalo and another person in berries and another person in, you know, finding a mate. And that way, collectively, we'll all get what we need. Um, So I think a lot of it is hardwired, you know, and kind of what are your, what's the natural reinforcer for your brain? And the predilection to becoming addicted just to anything at all is also hardwired, right? Although access to a drug is is a huge risk factor for addiction. Uh, so if you have more access to a drug, we're all more likely to get addicted to it. It's also true that the like the predilection for addictive types of behaviors, what we used to call the addictive personality, that's really true. There are differences there, and some people are more prone to addiction than others. And then a whole lot of nurture happens in what we call epigenetics or changes in gene expression and protein uh, expression based on our experiences. And so, yeah, I mean, you know what Toby was alluding to in terms of, you know, how do you raise your kids? Um, You know, it really does matter. If you lay those foundational adaptive and healthy behaviors early on, like, you know, how to delay gratification, how to do things that are hard, how to tolerate frustration, how to sit with ambivalence, how to effortfully engage and wait and sustain attention, those are all things that are practiced and learned in those neural networks. The more we do them, the more robust they become. And also vice versa, right? If we raise our kids and give them an iPad and, you know, we're on our phones and they're on the iPad and nobody goes outside and they eat junk food, those circuits then also get to be, uh, you know, um, kind of strengthened. So it's it's really both. But does that give like certain, like, let's just use that metaphor of being in a tribe and there's gathering berries or whatever if you're trying to create certain really extreme things for the tribe warriors let's say that would be you could i'm not suggesting to do that but you know an overstimulate you could set the you the nurture environment sets the baseline for a higher need for stimulation basically is that like too many ipads is going to that person is going to have a need for stimulation and then how will that interface with their future environment is maybe the bigger question. Yeah. Or, so, I mean, I think, again, it's a combination of what you're born with and the environment. And that's true for every mental health disorder. But what I'm suggesting is that this world of overabundance and drugification of almost everything that we do is a mismatch for the innate wiring that's preserved over species and millions of years of evolution that we all have, making us all more vulnerable to the problem of addiction. So that no matter what your starting point is in terms of your innate problem, you know, or or vulnerability for addiction, we're all now vulnerable because of the environment that we live in Mm -hmm. and the ways in which um, these instant pleasures are are changing our brains. But our brains are also plastic, which means that our brains can 
can learn new things and we can learn new things throughout our lifetimes. We continue to make new neurons throughout life. Um, the most plastic part is from you know, birth to age 25, but we don't lose our plasticity. Well, our plasticity lessens, but we don't lose, entirely lose the ability to, to, to change our brains. So that there's a good reason for hope is my point. You know, no matter where you are in your life, you can, you can change your brain, right, by changing your behaviors um, and, and limiting your access to pleasure and inviting hard things into your life and resetting your reward pathways as a result. How does your work uh, interface with looking at like hyperactive children or Ritalin or di- those diagnoses that happen in early, you know, early childhood in, in, in that way? Like, it, and is there something like that? The, like, is it fair to say that hyper children that are looking for stimulation, overstimulation stuff are in inha- like their baseline is they have less dopamine, like they have a low dopamine. So now they need to can't sit still in class. Uh huh. So, um, let me just say that I don't even. I, I'm not sure even, I even like the term hyper children. I would. Well, say. I, I I don't like it either. Right. I think, but right. I was. It's it's always been coming. My, if you know, no surprise there. But to be diagnosed or labeled or drugged has sure. always been what's oh. been coming after me. Since oh I yeah. I mean, what way. I think we need to recognize is that everybody has a different energy level. Some people are born on the less energy side of the spectrum. Some people are born with an enormous amount of energy. And really, uh, having a lot of energy is like such a wonderful gift if we can help people channel it. We live in a very sedentary world. Uh, we really don't live in a world that favors people with a lot of especially physical energy. But if we, instead of pathologizing that, recognized that that's a unique temperament and created an environment in which that, that energy could be effectively channeled, my hope is that we wouldn't put any kids on stimulants because I don't, you know, think that that's in most of the cases a good idea. So typically, you know, if I'm dealing with a family where the family is wondering about their hyperactive child, you know, what I would say is, well, what, how much exercise is that kid getting? Often it's none at all, right? Like, well, that kid, you know, if, would you do that to your dog? I mean, would right. you get a puppy and, and not walk that puppy? Of course you would. We treat our dogs better than we treat our kids. You got to get that kid out. And maybe, you know, the average kid needs to be out for an hour a day. Your kid might need five hours. Like that's, that's where your kid is on the spectrum. Go out and tire that kid out, you know, get that. And then you'll have a very peaceful, gentle child on your hands. But unfortunately, you know, it's, it's hard, right? Parents are working. They often don't even really have this basic understanding of energy and the way it plays in physiology. Schools, especially elementary schools and middle schools are not set up for physical high energy people. In fact, they, they generally squash those people and make them feel shameful for the way, yeah. that, you know, they're made. So those are all the things where we're really failing these kids. Is that high? But do they do the kids? What is the physiological basis for the high energy? Is it dopamine? Does they have more dopamine or less dopamine? Well, we don't. Naturally. Yeah, we don't really know. I mean, uh, the Bible, we, we don't really know. I mean, we, we went with these, these kids that we call it attention deficit hyperactivity kids. You know, the postulation or the postulate is that they're uh, in, the, in their frontal cortex or their prefrontal cortex, frontal lobe, there's some, you know, problematic wiring such that they have, they're more impulsive, they have mm-hmm. uh, you know, less, ability, yeah. less ability to delay gratification, there's more emotion dysregulation. You know, oh, that might be true, who knows? Um, but I mean, I, I just think we could totally shift the frame on that to something very positive and be like, 
you know, maybe nothing at all is wrong with that kid. It's just that that kid is not, uh, you know, is not a good match for the world we live in now, where we drive everywhere, where we sit all day long, where we're in front of screens. Um, you know, that kid probably would have done great growing up on a farm where you had to get up at four in the morning and, and you didn't get breakfast till you finished your chores at 10. And then, uh-huh. you know, you know, so, um, but we really don't know any of the physiological basis for people that are high energy. Like there's nothing, if you looked and examined a brain, you couldn't tell if this person's high energy or not. No, there's no I, levels of any chemical or neurotransmitter that would signify this is a high energy individual. If not, that's blowing my mind. That's, yeah, isn't that weird? Not that but, I know. Not that I know. That's bizarre. <laughs> I think that's well, like, does that, yeah. how mysterious then? Well, you know, Matt, I, I mean, I think it's good for, for you and your listeners to recognize we are at the humble, very humble beginnings of understanding how the brain works. It is still basically a big black box. It's like the, you know, the, 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 the night sky inside our, our cranium. That's how vast it is. That's how many neurons we have. We're really just beginning to understand how it works. And even like the basic understanding that we have now of dopamine and how it affects um, reward, pleasure, motivation, addiction, you know, a hundred years from now, we may have a very different understanding. My only sense about it from observing it than myself and others and my kids and everything else is it seems like it's related to like low inhibitory function. Like can't not do something. Like I can't not mm -hmm. interrupt people. I can't, I do it to you. I do it to everybody. I can't not do the thing that I want to do. <laughs> That's right, what it feels right. like. And I'm not scared of right. things I should be scared of or right. embarrassed about things I should be embarrassed about. I just got to do it. So that's a, that's a temperamental trait that has been studied, not by looking at the brain, but simply by surveying people and finding what are some enduring traits and in, what we call impulsivity or just difficulty putting a pause button or stopping the desire to do something and doing it. That's an enduring trait that you can track early on in kids that persist throughout life impulsivity is associated with increased risk of addiction. Um, but, you know, how that actually looks in the brain and, you know, what the brain wiring, or we don't know. We don't know, you know. And the other thing I would say to you, Matt, is you might have more difficulty putting the brakes on things you want to do and doing them. But if you really want to put the brakes on, you know you can, right? You mm -hmm. know you can. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm learning to do it more. I mean, yeah. I'm getting better. But it's taking it's taking me until I'm 40 to even take a breath and go, wait a second. Yeah. I could, you know, there's a possibility. You know, I've been able to get a glimpse of what it would mean to modulate that, partly meditation or anything. It's like, oh, yeah, there is this. I can get a separation from this go mode right. somehow, right. and there then I go. can recognize it. But it's it's a you know, it'll be a it'll take me forty more years to figure <laughs> it out. Yeah. Um, well, speaking of kids, my kids are losing their mind because I I canceled all computer time, so they're losing their mind upstairs right now. So we'll we'll go ahead and end this here in a second. I have one last question for you though. One thing I have wondered is, and I don't know if this is a two part or not, but are are we all addicts and are we look are we looking for the thing to get addicted to or does it find us uh like it and then when that happens is it always bad like uh our drummer dave always says man if i have a couple beers before we go out on stage i play better like he says mm -hmm. the alcohol makes him but he's talking about because his inhibitions and he's a little right. nervous or something like that but some of these things that we can be addicted to are they also working our favor? Like that's what makes it so hard for me sometimes. Because if I'm at a party, I way rather have three or four drinks than no drinks. I will have a way worse time. I'll be a worse person to be around. I won't have as fun. But is that just because I've trained myself? Like, are, are we are we trying to find something that makes us feel okay and work in our life? 
Yeah, so the bottom line is that um, most people start out using a substance or a behavior for one of two reasons, to have fun or to solve a problem. And they go back to that because it works. It either helps them have fun or it solves their problem. Maybe the problem is I'm, I'm inhibited on stage and I, I want to be able to be less inhibited. I feel anxious at a party and I, I want to be able to have more fun at a party. Those are very common reasons that people will use. The problem is that over time, the drug usually stops working. Then people need more or more potent forms to get the same effect. Then they're dealing with the come down and they potentially get into that vortex of compulsive overuse. You know, it's not that every person who uses a substance or a behavior is going to get addicted that, to that behavior. The definition of, of addiction is the continued compulsive use of a substance or behavior despite harm to self and or others, right? So you're looking for out-of-control use, compulsive use, cravings, continued use despite consequences. You're looking for tolerance, meaning more and more of the drug to get the same effect, withdrawal when you stop using the drug and finding diminished pleasure in other things that used to give you pleasure as you go into that dopamine deficit state. So those are the things to look for. It's a spectrum disorder, you know, not like one day you cross over and you're like, oh, now I'm in addiction zone, you know. Right. Uh, some people are very severely addicted. It's obvious everybody can see it. Most of us have subtler forms of addiction today um, of compulsive behavior. We live in a kind of, as I said, an addictogenic world. So, you know, these are nuanced things. It's not black and white, but I would say to you, um, you know, that I believe that there are ways you could learn to have fun at a party without alcohol, which, which would take work, but which would ultimately be more rewarding for you and probably also healthier. Yeah. That, I mean, knowing absolutely nothing else about you, that for would sure. be, and that would be something that I would think you would want to model for your kids too. Yeah. And yeah, the same thing right. with your drummer. That's great. You know, the, the best thing for um, sort of performance anxiety is, is exposure therapy, actually forcing yourself to do the same thing again and again without pre-medicating with an intoxicant and building up the neurological resilience until you finally kind of enjoy it. So for example, I did that with flying. I have quite a significant flying phobia. I still kind of do, but I've flown so much now that I kind of get excited about flying. So anxiety, you know, and, and uh, anxiety and excitement are really kind of the same emotion. Just Mm. depends what kind of spin you're giving it. Yeah, you can flip that. That's why I always think about flying. It's so crazy because you sit there and you're supposed to have a Xanax and roll down the shade and have a Bloody Mary and pretend like you're, uh, you know, relaxing the most relaxation. And you just look at what is happening. It should be, you should be so excited, like taking off. You're going 200 miles an hour. It's like, you should be like, if the, if the windows were down and you felt that wind coming, it'd be the most exciting thing ever. That's the yeah, so, that, psychological state of taking so off on funny. a plane. Everybody should be so excited. And if you're right. not excited, I'll bet you're anxious. I bet well, you're nervous. Right. I bet you're scared. Well, for me, uh, you know, without any kind of intoxicant on a plane, y- yes, I, but I look down and I say, everybody should be terrified. Nobody <laughs> yeah. should be in this tin can in the sky. This is insanity. What are we doing? Right. <laughs> yeah, it's wild, wild. And um, I'm sorry for one last question, but the way you say addiction there, it kind of seems like it cuts against, um, the idea that oh, I have the I have the alcoholic gene, and they're all, like in the way AA and stuff sometimes can be. It's like nope, I am alcoholic by identity, and there's no you're, you either are or you aren't, and you have it or you don't. Like there, that's that's in the culture, isn't it? About addiction. Well, I think that's changing. I think that it's, everybody recognizes that it's a spectrum disorder, and that you know people have varying degrees of problems related to addictive you know behaviors. Um, I, I mean, I think the AA notion of like I have an allergy. What that recognizes, what I mean, the point of that is to recognize the physiology of it and the overwhelming nature of that physiology once people have become addicted such that, you know, 
for, for, for people like that, it, it's really not within their control once they start mm -hmm. drinking their kids. So those are people who have to abstain for life. So I think it's that, that recognition of like the disease aspect of physiology, you know, is, is, can be very helpful for people. You know, if it just then people sort of succumb to it and say, well, then there's nothing I can do that. That's not good. But obviously, you know, I have to go. This has been so great. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, thank you okay. so yeah, much. Thank you so much. And, yeah. and people can find you at analimpkey.com and, there you and go. find your books and everything, yeah. right? Yeah. All right. Mm -hmm. so Anna, nice we really you. appreciate your time so My much. Thank pleasure. you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Have a great day. All right. Uh, that was great. That was, awesome. that was really good. Uh, man, my kids are losing their minds because I don't. I'm not giving them their dopamine hit right now. Yeah, you got to go. I get said, them to I, I said, you can't have your computers, and they're like, I just hear them like yelling, <laughs> not like ah, they don't know what to do with their energy. Normally, they're focused yeah. on the screen, and and then whatever that react. It's it's going to be so hard though because, like she said, the everybody's on it. So it's not, I don't think it's going back to no computers. There'll be some people that, you know, maybe like the Amish or something that avoid it. There'll be groups of people that go technology isn't, it's too much and it's too much information. You can feel people but, have that impulse. Like everybody wishes you could unplug and get the, I mean, everybody you can't you can hardly. feel it. Well, no, it's yeah. so hard. I mean, it's so hard. Everything is online. I mean, everything, you know what I mean? Like I just, I don't even know how, how to, I, I, I'm trying to navigate that right now. Like a reset for my family. But after those two weeks, are we just going to go back to just only a few days of the dopamine hit? Or And then, the, I mean, they use computers at all their schools. They're on their computers all day at schools now. It's not, yeah. You can't just blame computers, but yet, but you had to think I'm of it as digital. where is the pain. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, well, the digital cuts out a lot of the pain. Right. When he thinks it's digital, but it's like, what can make this, what is the negative side of this? You can't just ignore it or something. Like, you have to, I guess that's why it's all. It's like exercise, I guess, is the most yeah. basic thing you can do. You just separate. Like, you can do it five hours on the screen and five hours of exercise in a day if you're that kind of person. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I think can't so. can't do nothing. Right, right. Do you know what I mean? Like, you, you know that you can't do nothing. I mean, you could you could learn to do nothing over time. Blaise Pascal said, like, um, it's an old quote that all of the humanity's problems come from the inability for a person to sit still in a room. Yeah. So right. you could get better and better at sitting still in a room, but that's like, isn't that the hardest thing to ever do? It Solitary confinement. You sounds know? awful. If you had to get rid of one thing, what would yours be? Like if you couldn't ever like, because it's funny too, they always go to the big ones. It's always sex, drugs, or, uh, technology. You know, that's our, that's our, uh, that's the big ones. If you, if you can never have another drug, you can never have sex again or shoot a load, I guess, or, uh, never shoot a never, load again, nev never do a drug. For, for recreation, which one would you give up at this well, point I, in your life? I would consider sex or drugs over technology. If that, I don't see how those are really equivalent. You so would, I think that's the obvious. That you, you would give up sex or drugs? What, to you, keep technology? Anybody? Yeah, but what if you gave up technology? I mean, you could give up technology. I, I just don't have any imagination for what that would mean, so I can't go there. I'll, but I'll, I'll keep the, the alcohol drugs, and the sex. <laughs> Give me those. I'll keep those. I'll get rid of that. I, if I wait, you're telling me I can never go on a computer again in a month. I like she said, I'll be happy as hell. I, I'll be yeah, the yeah, happiest person in the world. I'll just only have my local friends, which are probably more real. I mean, the only that yeah yeah you're probably right. That'd be pretty probably phenomenal. Just make friends with your neighbors and love them. Yeah, and your family. You'd spend more yeah, time because yeah. you'd have to get your dopamine hits from real life or whatever we're saying is real life. So. 
Anyway. Yeah, probably right. All right, that's hilarious. I know you're sick. That's so funny. You have non-COVID illness, and you're just like uh, yeah, coughing. Cough, and just, yeah. well, sorry, All buddy. Right. <laughs> Enjoyed <laughs> it, though. You know I'm going to feel so great after I get sick. You know what I'm saying? You get a little yeah. down. Yeah. So I'm going to get just wild as soon as I get, you know, just oh, get over the boy. In oh, fact, boy. that conversation makes me want to go just do wild yeah. stuff. Like, yeah. you know, I can't help it. Like, even talking to her. Makes me want to go do crazy shit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, now you're talking. I know better, but I want to go do some, I want to go get high Ooh, drunk right oh, now. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to. <laughs> <laughs> hey,